0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Dark Haunting Histories and Ghosts. Now, the more I do these and the more I research I realize even if there's not any tangible ghost stories linked to the history of some of these places, the history itself is so incredible that it's haunting on its own and it can stand on its own feet because, you know, some of the history is just so sad or so intense. Speaking of so sad and so intense, We are going to do what I'm going to call Cowboys and Indians today. We're going to talk about some Indian schools or Native American schools and some old Wild West ghost towns or, you know, like mining era towns and some of the histories and legends that go along with that. We're going to start with Concho Indian Boarding School. Now, it was first opened at the Darlington Agency on the Cheyenne and Arapaho Reservation in 1871 by the Hicksite, Liberal, Friends and Orthodox Quakers and was called the Cheyenne Arapaho Boarding School. In 1872 the facility was built with federal funds but it was ran by Quakers few Cheyenne students attended the school, and as a means to entice them, a partition was erected to divide the classroom into two separate areas, one side for the Arapaho and the other for the Cheyenne. In 1879, the facility was renamed the Arapaho Manual Labor and Boarding School, and a new facility was built for the Cheyenne students, located at Caddo Springs which was then called, originally enough, the Cheyenne Manual Labor and Boarding School. Now, whoever was in charge of the PR of these boarding schools needs to be fired because I don't see myself signing up or signing my kids up for something called Manual Labor School. Now, granted, my kids can be jerks, so maybe in those moments I would sign them up for this, but just in general, I would probably not let them go. Now, within five years, it was reported that the children at the agency schools were responsible for raising 211 cattle and hogs and cultivating 130 acres of land. That is a hell of a lot of land. In 1881, a new school called the Darlington Mission School was built, and it was run by General Conference Mennonites. But a fire, which occurred on the 19th of February, 1882, destroyed the building. And sadly, it took the life of the missionary's infant son and three Indian children. Federal funds and donations from the Mennonite Mission Board were secured to rebuild the mission school. And it was completed by December 1882. The Mennonites had the same issues and problems as the Quakers had had in trying to educate the two tribes together. And they opened a fourth school in 1882 called Cantonment. By 1884, the agent reported that attendance in the four schools represented 66 students at the Arapaho boarding school, 22 students at the cantonment, 71 at the Cheyenne boarding school, and 28 students at Darlington. After 1890, one federal policy shifted and began to require more standardization for attendance quotas and less use of federal funds for church-contracted institutions. By the mid-1890s, only about half of the school-aged children on the Cheyenne and Arapaho reservation were attending school. An experiment with enrolling native american children into the public school system and offsetting costs to the schools was attempted in 1896 through 1897 but was discontinued declining attendance at darlington forced its permanent closure in june 1898 and cantonment in closed in 1901 in 1908, both the Arapaho and Cheyenne Manual Labor and Boarding School closed, and the facilities sold by the government, the Darlington uh, Agency, since closed and ro- relocated to Concho in 1909. The whole curriculum of the Indian schools was developed as a means of assimilating the Indian or Native American children into the mainstream society. Like other federal boarding schools, it was run on a strict military model. Students woke at 5 a.m., performed military drills until breakfast, and classes um, began by 6 a.m. Now, I don't know about any of you or many of you, but don't even talk to me or ask me my name before 7.30 and before I've had a cup of coffee because it's just nothing's going to happen. So having to start classes by 6 a.m., when I can't even wake up at 6 a.m. Just would be torture to me. Students were taught reading, writing, arithmetic for half the day and then the remainder of the day it was spent on manual labor. Trades and farming were taught to the boys and girls were taught domestic labor and nursing. A large experimental farm was maintained where the children were instructed in conservation and planting techniques. Discipline was super strict and infractions like speaking in their native language rather than English. They were punished by breaking large rocks into smaller rocks or sawing wood. So that's kind of like the physical punishment that you would have saw around this time in prisons. You know, you're out and, you know, you're locked up for five years hard labor. You're thrown in the middle of the yard with a little tiny hammer and you got to break rocks. That's what it makes me think of. Now, by the time the school closed in the early 1980s, it offered instruction for grades 1 through 8 and was predominantly intended by orphans and students who had difficult home environments. It is said that students at Concho Indian School had a harder time than their counterparts at other Indian schools. They were ripped from their families and forced into a harsh military regiment. That stripped them of all of their dignity and tried to remove their Native American identity. They were made to serve white overseers who exploited them and degraded them. Many students ultimately killed themselves in an effort to escape. That's a pretty extreme measure to take just to get yourself out of a situation. So that in itself should tell you how hard and how harsh the school was. Now, their tortured souls are said to still haunt the hallways in the classrooms. They're moaning and they're, they're wanting revenge at this point. I actually read somewhere that most Native Americans were in favor of the boarding schools, and many were sad when they closed. My 21st century thinking just doesn't know how that's possible, but, you know, due to hundreds of years of wars, and the expansion of the West, their way of life was basically no longer even feasible. Buffalo herds were wiped out and they were forced onto the reservations where they needed to farm uh, just to feed themselves. Now, as hunter gatherers, you know, that would move and follow these herds of buffalo or deer, you know, to try to all of a sudden cultivate an area, you know, without the knowledge to do so, made it very hard. Also, there were sayings back around this time frame that the only good Indian was a dead Indian. And faced with the choice between boarding schools and learning how to survive and genocide, I guess there is really only one choice, even if it seems intolerable to our ideals of self today. We're really spoiled today, obviously, in comparison to this situation. The horrors and the abuses that took place would haunt any area that it took place in, as well as any person that it had happened to and those that know of it. It was reported that the school had widespread sexual abuse and widespread physical abuse. Not just, you know, breaking up rocks, there are claims that the students were punished so harshly, some of them were actually drowned and were buried underneath the school. It's also rumored that the school is built on a Native American burial ground. Now while at the site, ghostly Native American music and flutes can be heard floating through the air. Now it's just as calm and you know quiet as sometimes a breeze. And there are no sources that can be found of where this flute music is coming from. Shadow figures have been seen as well as faces looking out through the windows. You can hear items being thrown in other rooms and with some force, so it's not something falling from the ceiling. It's something actually being thrown hitting walls. And the rooms are completely empty and there's no you know, explanation of what can cause the noise. Abuse and trauma imprints itself in the area that it happened. It changes the vibration of an area. It absorbs itself like cigarette smoke into the very walls. So you know it's no wonder that this place is so haunted now the next one we're going to talk about is Willowoc Academy Willowoc Academy was founded in 1832 so about 50 years earlier than the one we just talked about and it was founded by missionaries Alfred and Harriet Wright this one was an all-girls school for Choctaw tribal members Like most of the tribal schools at this time, students were not allowed to use their native languages or practice their traditions. Will Locke was the model academy for the five civilized tribes. The five civilized tribes included the Cherokee, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole. Now, actually, my grandma is a member of um, the Cherokee, Choctaw, and Chickasaw tribes. So her family, you know, went through the Trail of Tears up into the Oklahoma Territory at the time. Now, they were originally from the southeast and were called civilized because they adopted a lot of the attributes of the Anglo and American culture. Within a year, the superintendent of the Choctaw Agency reported that Willowock Academy had become the model for Indian education. In 1839, Wright expanded the school by building a large dormitory to accommodate boarding students. The institution he founded became the first Choctaw National Academy in 1842. Alfred died March 31, 1853, and Reverend John Edwards was named to replace him as the head of the school. Wheelock Academy closed during the Civil War, and it reopened until a fire in 1869. The Choctaw Nation rebuilt the facility in between 1880 and 1884 with the help from the Southern Presbyterian Church. In 1898, the Curtis Act had required the gradual closure of all tribal schools. By 1930, Wilwock and the Jones Academy were the only remaining Choctaw schools. In 1932, Willwalk became a United States Indian school. In 1955, the Wheelock Academy closed permanently. During its time open curriculum, besides trying to erase their culture, the girls were taught domestic skills as well as business skills, reading, writing, spelling, and the English language. They also learned math, music, geometry, uh, geography, chemistry, and sometimes even philosophy. I think, comparatively for what girls were generally taught around this time frame, it was actually a good education. Now, I mean, besides trying to completely eradicate their culture, uh, rumors contend that a man broke into the girls' dorm and murdered them. I have to say that I've not found any sources or conclusive proof that this actually happened, but it's part of the local legend. And local legends say that the walls and trees actually bleed. Apparitions have been seen sitting in chairs or hanging from trees. One story involves some teenagers who tried to steal a vase from the cemetery and when they got into their car to drive away the car wouldn't start. A few minutes later they decided that it was probably bad luck to take the vase and they put the vase back and their car You know, finally started. Now, if you behave disrespectfully disrespectfully of the area itself, shadows will follow you through the trees and try to chase you off. And I think any area where there's souls or spirits or something negative has happened, if you act disrespectfully, I think you should be chased off. I mean, in general, even if you're a human and you're a jerk and you're behaving disrespectfully, I wish a shadow would pop out and like scare you off almost like social justice ghost man or something like that but that's not going to happen. So now let's get into the cowboy portion of our Cowboys and Indian story time. Now we're going to talk about an area actually that I live by and my dad has a ranch fairly close by this area and it is called Cripple Creek. Now back in its heyday Cripple Creek Could possibly boast about a population of 55,000. Now it's in a small little mountainous area. So that's a lot of people. And that was around the turn of the 20th century. Hardworking miners and outlaws came to Cripple Creek looking to make a quick buck. Lawlessness ruled the streets. And Cripple Creek's history begins with Native Americans. The Ute tribe, who lived off the land for many years lived in this general area. Now, Cripple Creek has this really high valley, and its elevation is 9,494 feet. And it was considered no more important than a cattle pasture. It really is a really beautiful valley, though. Prospectors avoided that area thanks to the Mount Pisgah hoax. And Mount Pisgah hoax was actually a little mini gold rush and it was caused by salting the area. (coughs) Now salting the area um, meant that people went to this general area and added gold to worthless rocks to make it look like it was gonna be a good area. But on October 20th, 1890, Robert Miller or Bob Walmack discovered a rich ore and the last great colorado gold rush began thousands of prospectors flocked to the region and before long winfield scott stratton located the famous independence load one of the largest gold strikes in history in three years the population increased from 500 to 10,000 in just three years now I kind of feel like that's happening to Colorado Springs right now it's really getting on my nerves so I couldn't imagine living in that you know small valley and having that happen although 500 million dollars worth of gold was dug from the Cripple Creek uh, area Walmack actually died penniless in 1909 in 1896, Cripple Creek suffered two disastrous fires, and I feel like any ghost town <laughs> worth its salt or, you know, any area where prospectors go, you have to have a fire. Now, these two fires actually were just 2 day- or 4 days apart and the city was just rebuilt. The entire city was built in just months afterward. That's how many people, you know, were there to build it. Now, a lot of the old wooden buildings had been turned into rocker brick buildings, Um, so that way a fire didn't tear through it all again. Um, Cripple Creek and its sister city of Victor were the epitome of rough and tumble mining towns. Now, I absolutely think it's a blast to go to these places and look around. Because the history, you can just see the history. There's areas where you actually still see bullets in some of the stone and brickwork around the areas. Um, now, like any good you know, mining town worth its salt, um, it had its fair share of criminals and gunslingers. Some of the famous people who visited have gone from famous to infamous. Famous bad guy Bob Ford... you know, the one who shot Jesse James in the back of the head for his bounty, tried to make his way to Cripple Creek. While he was in Colorado City, the town was actually tipped off and the sheriff met Ford at the city limits and asked him very nicely to turn around and go the other way. He was not wanted there. Another great group that passed through and that came was Wyatt Earp and the Wild Bunch. Now, if you don't know who they are, Please pause this podcast and go read a book about, you know, Old West history because it's incredible. Have you ever seen the movie Tombstone? Start there. So Wild Arp and the Wild Bunch made their way through uh, the two mile high city. And in 1895, Virgil and Wyatt and their wives uh, were in the boom town and they wanted to open a saloon and gambling hall, but were too late. Because there were already so many established saloons that they couldn't compete with them. So arriving in Colorado as a fugitive from Arizona in April 82, another famous guy showed up. And that was Doc Holliday. Now he bounced around the state for about five years, mostly by train and hit most of the boom towns in the area including denver silverton which is a beautiful spot as well pueblo which is basically in my opinion because i grew up there the armpit of colorado trinidad and cripple creek and leadville Leadville's pretty cool too i gotta give it to it and his final stop was glenwood springs which is beautiful and a lot of sick people would go there because of the natural hot springs Like many other mining towns of the Old West, Cripple Creek is said to be extremely haunted. Its rich history of mining accidents, floods, fires, lawlessness, and bloody battles between mine owners and labor unions, it comes as no surprise to learn of the many ghosts who continue to linger. In fact, this town once boasted one homicide per day. So some of these ghosts, there's no way to even you know attach it to a historical event like i like to do at the colorado grand casino uh, and maggie's restaurant which has been everything from a medical office to a masonic lodge ballroom and a mortuary there is the ghost of maggie now not much is known or that i could find about maggie but she is described as about 25 years old and dressed in the turn of the century you know, 19th to 20th, not 20th to 21st century clothes. She wears a white shirt, a long cotton skirt, and high-heeled boots. The young beauty with her hair piled on top of her head is known for her Irish-accented singing and leaving behind the scent of rose perfume. Following the disastrous fire that razed most of the city in 1896, the Imperial Hotel was built to accommodate... Uh, the many miners and visitors to the area. It was basically super fancy with amenities such as electric lighting and steam heat. In the early part of the 20th century the hotel was run by the Englishman uh, George Long. As a young man he moved from Europe and made his way to Denver where he married his first cousin And before long the young couple was running a hotel focusing on the european style service comfort and dining so they wanted to bring a little bit of class to the mining town comfortably employed and settled the young couple started to have a family they had two daughters and a son they seemed to have that you know perfect picture perfect life Uh, Perhaps because they were first cousins or maybe because they're so closely related, their oldest daughter, Alice, actually suffered from a severe mental disorder. I'm not quite sure if it was like schizophrenia, bipolar, or if it was like Down syndrome. But as the girl grew older, she became more and more difficult to control. Her parents actually had to finally keep her locked up into their apartment next to the lobby. Now today, the site of that area is called... Uh, the Red Rooster Bar. Sometime later, when George was going down the narrow stairs to the basement, he fell to his death. Though it very well could have been an accident, because you know the stairs to the basement were so steep and narrow. Uh, rumors began around, you know, to abound and get past that Alice had actually killed her father when he approached the top of the stairs. it's said that she struck him in the head with an iron skillet. Now, this historic hotel is said to be haunted today by its former owner, George, who allegedly likes to flirt with the ladies and play the slots. Several nighttime guards will tell stories of how the dining area or the casino floor, you can hear the ding, ding, ding of the slot machines and the coins actually hitting the hopper. And that'll go late into the night after the casino has been closed for a while. However, they go and check the casino floor because obviously we've got to make sure nobody's there and it'll be completely empty. So, you know, when the machines are checked for malfunctions, like, you know, what's making them make these noises, there's nothing wrong found. Guests, especially women, have felt something or someone touching them during the night. Another tale alleges that a chambermaid reported having her butt pinched by an unseen hand. Maybe George was just shit. And Alice whacked him over the head. Or maybe even George's wife whacked him over the head as he was going downstairs. Just because he was obnoxious. Um, That or he's just, now that he's dead, he's going to try to get away with some stuff. Um, Even Miss Alice leaves her imprint on the historic hotel. If the staff leaves the door to the Red Rooster Bar closed, they can hear the scratching on the other side of the door. She doesn't want to be locked in. You know, so... I don't blame her leave it open let her run around unless she, you know she caused trouble now but whatever so hopefully you liked that one that one's a little close to home the next ghost town I'm gonna to talk about is a place called South Pass City South Pass City Wyoming developed rapidly as a stage and telegraph station on the Oregon Trail during the 1850s the site of the first settlement and the area was about nine miles south of the present day South Pass City, at what is today known as Burnt Ranch. Burnt Ranch was located where the immigrant, immigrant trails located, uh, or where the trails crossed the Sweetwater River uh, for the last time and ascended toward the South Pass. In August 1861, 25-year-old Samuel Clemens, later known as Mark Twain, passed through um, South Pass City via stagecoach with his brother Orion, or Orion, newly appointed as Secretary of Nevada Territory. Mark Twain later wrote about the experiences first published in 1872. We have in sight of South Pass City The hotel keeper, the postmaster, the blacksmith, the mayor, the constable, the city marshal, and the principal citizen and property holder all came out and greeted us cheerily, and we gave him a good day. He gave us a little Indian news and a little Rocky Mountain news, and we gave him some plains news in return. He then retired to his lonely grandeur, and we climbed up among the bristling peaks and the ragged clouds. South Pass City consisted of four log cabins, one of which was unfinished, and the gentleman with all of those offices and titles was the chiefest of the ten citizens of the place. Think of the hotel keeper, postmaster, blacksmith, mayor, constable, city marshal, and principal citizen all condensed into one person and crammed into one skin. In 1866 gold was discovered in the vicinity. And a year later, prospecting began and would become the Carissa Mine. Prospectors and adventurers quickly arrived and founded South Pass City within a year. The community's population had swelled to about 2,000. Within a decade, the city's population shrank back down dramatically, as the large gold deposits that had been hoped for had failed to materialize. By the mid 1870s, south pass city's population was reduced to about a hundred people but apparently grew to be 180 by 1901. in 1867 sioux indians attacked the miners the miners fled but returned and by 1868 or returned by 16 hell 1868 and the sioux attacked again and carried off 100 horses and mules The miners, well armed but with no mounts, could not pursue the raiders. Again, the Sioux attacked. This time, not only did they take the stock, but they also took general merchandise. They killed four men. The visiting miners and other adventurers didn't only have to worry about Sioux raids killing them. They also had a serial killer among them. The earliest account of the murderess at the Bartlett Inn was published in The Real West Magazine, Volume 6, Number 30, published July 1963. The story, Polly Bartlett, Wyoming's Amazing Poisoner, was written by Dean W. Bollinger, and it reads like a western novella. South Pass was a critical hub for the railroad and its way, and it was the safest point to cross the Rocky Mountains. The steady flow of people, some with gold blind pockets, brought the Bartlett's a stream of victims. Polly and her father, Jim, had a history of crime already. In Ohio, they ran a saloon. Polly would take the men upstairs for a bit of hanky-panky, while Jim would rob them blind downstairs. Then, in desperate times, they ran to the Wyoming Territory. In the Wyoming Territory, Polly poisoned her first lover for $4,000. That awoken them a terrible, monstrous idea. She with the help of her good old dad would establish the Bartlett Inn just outside of South Pass. This would give Polly the perfect place to set her web. Men started turning up missing. All of their last known whereabouts just happened to be the Bartlett Inn. A wealthy mine owner, Bernard Fountain, was looking for his son and he knew that the Bartlett's had something to do with it. He hired a private investigator. The PI arrived at the inn with the local lawman. They questioned both Polly and Jim. <clears throat> Sorry. Shortly after the interview, the two got the hell out of there. Their disappearance was pretty freaking suspicious, so the PI and the lawman investigated the corral area. What they found was more gruesome than anybody that had expected. Put it this way Mr. Fountain found the remains of his son and the bodies of 20 uh, 21 other men polly and jim were now wanted dead or alive the two never made it out of the territory jim was shot while reaching for his gun and polly was found and arrested polly wouldn't live to stand trial she was actually killed when someone shot her with a 10-gauge shotgun they had made a lot of freaking enemies in this area now an actual true ghost town Only the ghosts remain. Paranormal groups have caught flashes on their cameras. Voices saying run when no one else is around. The one um, half mile Main Street now rings out with phantom screams. Several apparitions have been seen. A house long ago burned down has suddenly lit up in flames that weren't actually there. A woman has been seen standing by the house holding a gun. And another apparition, that of a Sioux Indian on horseback, has been seen as well. Maybe the woman had shot the raiding Sioux after he had lit her house on fire, then she was later killed by other members of the raiding party. We don't know. But what we do know about these abandoned towns is that they have a lot of their own stories, and a lot of stories that may never get told. Because think of Cripple Creek. A murder a day. Why? We're not going to know the answer to all of that. It's just impossible to know. But the idea that we can still drive through and be a part of that area of history is very cool to me. You know, like I said, I lived, lived up in that area of Cripple Creek. My dad has a ranch in that general area as well. You can actually walk around the hills and there's smaller ghost towns that um, aren't even marked on maps. You can find them um, on his ranch and BLM that surrounds his ranch. We have found old tombstones, like so grave markers like somebody had carved somebody's name into rocks and laid it over. Um, We find a lot of arrowheads and Native American stuff in that general area we can also still find flakes of gold if you go gold panning in the creeks around the area so it's a very very cool spot and I know I usually stick around in Europe but I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to spend some time over here telling some of America's stories and know that no we're you know, areas here, towns here aren't as old as European or English cities, but we have pretty good stories to tell here, too. We're just getting started, though, so maybe, you know, in a while, we'll have more. I am going to link my Twitter in the description below. If you have been interested in or thinking about making your own podcast, check out Buzzsprout. I'll also put a link where you can sign up Um, for that as well if you sign up using the link you'll actually get an amazon gift card so give that a shot and follow me on twitter if you have any ideas of stories that i should look into or tell let me know there if you want to let me know that i suck um don't bother finding me because i won't read it um i guess that's it everybody thank you for downloading and checking in and i'm sorry for the delay Hoping to make a couple more this week while I'm on vacation and get them scheduled out. Alright, talk to you all soon and thank you again. Bye bye.